This episode of the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast is sponsored by Poor Things. For your consideration, Searchlight Pictures presents Poor Things, the brilliant new comedy from director Yorgos Lanthimos. Poor Things is the incredible evolutionary tale of Bella Baxter, a young woman brought back to life by the brilliant and unorthodox scientist Dr. Goodwin Baxter, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, Rami Youssef, and Jared Carmichael. Poor Things is one of the best-reviewed films of the year and winner of the Golden Lion for Best Film at the Venice International Film Festival. Variety calls Poor Things, quote, the best film of the year. Now nominated for seven Golden Globes and 13 Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture, for your consideration in all categories. Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm a writer over at IndieWire, and I hope that you are enjoying a decadent and festive end of the year, because today we are talking to writer and director Emerald Fennell about her film, Saltburn. This movie, (laughs) y'all, the cinematography whips. Uh, The music is ruthless to all millennials uh, in the best way. The environments are constantly taking the piss out of the characters, and there are such funny warped power dynamics at play. So I got the chance to ask Emerald about a lot of the different components of Saltburn, and she was kind enough to talk to me a little bit about the joys of telling a story that is unsubtle without being foolish, and one that embraces a lot of different uh, genre conventions and tones because that melding is what gets at the characters. I learned a lot from this, and I think you will too. So please pull up some cold mince pie, draw the curtains, and enjoy this conversation with Emerald Fennell. I would love to to start. Uh, I, I'm I'm always curious with with folks who write and direct, kind of how how visually you write and how much of a foundation you want to lay down in the script versus how much you you feel like you need to figure out when you see a space and are figuring out the blocking and the framing of it. Um, I think it's a little bit of both, but for me, it's very visual. The way that I write is is well, well, I suppose the way that I write is that I think. So I, I live in the world for years and years and I go back and I have the conversations and um, and so the details of the world feel fairly fleshed out to me. And then in terms of shots, um, you know, you hope that all of your shots are going to be storytelling, but the ones that are really kind of crucial, um, yeah, I tend to kind of lay them out, particularly if there's like, um, you know, any intimate scenes. I like the actors to know what they're going to be even from the get-go, what, what we're going to be seeing and what we're not going to be seeing. And, and so they kind of feel comfortable and they can visualize it too. Um, but also I have a sneaking suspicion that nobody, especially the actors, but sometimes including HODs, read the stage directions. <laughs> so I try and keep them quite short. And um, a lot of the time they're they're specific about shots, but they may... Um, but they're kind of there to establish tone as well, to be the kind of voice of the movie in a funny way like a, like you have with a kind of novel. So um, they might just be very kind of lean and then, you know, it's about talking to Linus, talking to Susie, talking to everyone once you get together about how everything's going to look. Amazing, yeah. I, especially, I, w- I would imagine, on a film that plays with tone and, and sort of shifts and and 
is is keeping the audience off balance you want someone going through the script to have that experience too absolutely i mean and the way and and i don't nobody knows what i'm working on um until i deliver it so yeah so my um team and and um i always hate saying my team it makes me feel like kind of like my team i love my team um <laughs> by which i mean my lovely manager and um, and agents, I, I so they don't know what I'm working on until I deliver the script, and and that's and and it's really lovely to do it that way because it means they kind of experience the movie as it's meant to be experienced, as, you know, as close as you can, which is that they're learning it as they go along. Yeah, and so I think when it comes to tone, it, it's a really hard one. It, it, so much is a kind of natural thing, you know. It's the way we all are. We all of us have a tone in our lives. The way we dress, the way we brush our hair, the way we—I I don't know—dress our houses, whatever. We all have this tone. So it's sort of a lot of the time it's about finding those other people that share it. And Victoria Boydell, who's the amazing editor in the film, you know, I think she has such a similar tone to me. She's she's very dark sense of humor. Um, you know, really kind of wanting to push the boundaries, but she's also kind of very firm on, yeah, on storytelling and narrative and emotional, you know, connect and connectedness. And yeah, so so I think a tone is something you have to, you have to find together. Mm. Um, but I like always to push people to go to the, push people to do the bad stuff. And I don't mean like morally, but, you know, I don't mind that. Um, but like the big swing. Yeah, but not just the big swing. It's it's actually kind of on a more mundane, like day to day level. It's like, you know, if there's if we're in a room, why is the carpet so clean? Or if is if it's clean, why? Or you know, if we've been on a date for an hour and there are you know glasses all over the table to indicate we're really getting on and we've been here for hours, you know, why isn't there anything else on the table? Why aren't there bits of, you know, why aren't there phones? Why aren't there bits of chewing gum in a bit of tissue? You know, it's just the stuff of the layering up, the layering up and then, and then you know, pushing people to kind of do stuff that does feel um, overwrought or over the top so you can pull it back. Because I like to kind of start from a very like maximalist, unsubtle place in a funny way because I think I think we're very much bludgeoned bludgeoned to the idea of um with the idea of subtlety a lot in art and I think it's funny because I don't think we're very subtle as people I don't think we're very good actors um and I think that all of the subtext that we think we're kind of relaying is I think it's very obvious to other people so um you know a lot of the time it's like asking Susie who's so brilliant you know, and so his work is so beautiful to be less beautiful, to make it more naff or, you know, the actors to do bad acting as much as good acting because you don't use it very often. But when you do, you need it because it sort of feels lifelike. That jogs in my memory Felix's smile when they're at Oliver's parents' house, which is absolutely unhinged, the most unnatural. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's exactly what he feels in that moment. Yeah. And it's great. <laughs> I said to him, you need to, we're going to, I said to Jacob, I'm going to be really, really close here. And I want you to do this whole scene like laughing and smiling, but like the biggest laugh and the biggest smile you've ever done. He's like, I hate this. I hate this. It's fucking crazy. And I was like, I know, but that's what, you know, and, and it's just like that. And, you you know, we only used one or maybe two shots of that of that take, but like, or maybe even just one. But it, it, but it establishes the, yeah, the total, 
madness. That's what it feels like. That's what we all look like when we think we're being like really cool and normal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I love to, I I, I would be curious to to ask you about in terms of all of the the mess and all the stuff and um, all of the... God bless the Pringles cans on the floor of of uh, Felix's dorm. There seems like something that's setting it in like the early the early aughts, um, mid to late. Mid to actually. late. Sorry. No, um, no, no. Sorry, I don't mean to be. It's just um, no, it's no, funny because no. it's it's actually kind of it's two thousand and six and yeah. seven. It's mostly two thousand and seven, right? And it and actually it feels earlier than it is because we just. It's unbearable to think it's, <laughs> that it's yeah that it's <laughs> yeah it's like anything from before two thousand eight. I'm like that was early, that right? Was yesterday, yeah, yeah. But yes, yeah, setting it setting it in that particular period, it it feels like there's just ample opportunity to sort of cut the characters down to size and whatever they are presenting to to be like. You're wearing a Livestrong bracelet, sir. You're not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is. It's very humanizing, the yeah. recent past, because it, you know, it just reminds you that we're all living in, we're just creatures of our time. And even with, you know, even if you're the most gorgeous person in the world, you're still wearing a Livestrong bracelet and, you yeah. know, still got a Carpe Diem tattoo. Um, I think it was important. And, you know, it was always, it always, it, it was always going to have to be a period drama to some extent because of the you know the gothic tradition that this this comes from always starts with a you know a kind of narrator telling the audience about you know the summer that kind of changed their lives or the time that changed their life whether it's like great gatsby or or brideshead or the go between so i knew it had to it had to be in the recent past and it really 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 helped it you know it just it makes it's just much, much easier to kind of satirize behavior as well when you're at a little bit of a distance, mm-hmm. you know, because I always think, like, what would they have been watching now? It, it's difficult. It's difficult because they'd probably been watching Succession, you know, or they'd probably been watching something that felt like something that would be, you know, what's the surprising thing? Maybe they'd have been watching, like, Love Island or something. But it doesn't it doesn't hit the same way. It's not, yeah. you, you, you can't be objective in the same way, I don't think. And it just, it, it feels like, by setting it in that period, the movie gets to have sort of what you were talking about, that sort of voice to to bring the characters down to size a little bit um, in, a, in a really wonderful way that informs the comedy of it. Um, and it seems like a wonderful way through. Is that, yeah, I would just be curious, like, is that something or, or what about sort of the gothic tradition really called to you? I mean, I think partly just because I'm a little goth, a little Fair. goth at heart. So I was always, you know, from the very, very beginning, it was it was the earliest versions of that. It was like, you know, Christopher Pike and R.L. Stein and Goosebumps and Point Horror and cheerleaders getting decapitated and, you know, and then later on Stephen King. And so kind of a lot of horror, but, but also a lot of poetry and romance. So the Brontes and Daphne du Maurier and... Um, E.M. Forster, all of those kind of classic novelists. And I think the thing that I liked so much is that romance, in the Gothic tradition, love and and kind of sex and death, love and repellence tend to be the same thing. Mm. And it's usually it's usually that love is a is fundamentally a, a kind of frightening bad thing that can that can make you do bad things as much as good and so I suppose just because I'm quite because <laughs> I'm a bit of a like basic bitch I um I was always interested in that and there's something so potent about that 
you know, something happened in a country house one summer. That that feeling of yearning, that feeling I think that we all kind of just understand of a person or a place or a time that just we can't quite get out of our minds. Yeah. Um, and since this film is about, if it's about anything, you know, it, it is, It's I suppose it's about lots of things, but it's also about our very current um, relationship with looking at things and wanting them and a completely sort of insatiable sort of desire for looking and wanting and there's you know it, it felt like that this sort of very restrained british genre felt like a really fun way of pushing that that you know need to possess something that is an ancestral castle uh, well yeah but also a person wanting yeah. to be but also it's not it's never it's always about the person too it's about yeah. being special being seen being special being fuckable being intriguing being all the things we all hope to be when we get up in the morning like we're all hoping that we're going to be seen in the most interesting light and yeah it just it makes sense to me that to to kind of make that more explicit I mean in every conceivable way to say like what does that thing feel like to just to just want to be someone and want someone and want a, a life so much that you would just fucking take it all down it's always the thing that maybe interested me about the idea most is that if you're an acolyte your pleasure is sort of always deferred or always reflected and so the thing about oliver is is he's he's a genius at playing the court he's a genius at like taking information and using it to his advantage he's a genius at seeing what people want what they really want rather than what they think they want and giving it to them but what he wants is sort of far away from him. You know, yeah. it's not really, a che- it's not possible to get. I'm not even sure that he knows himself. He knows the steps along the way that he needs to take to get there. But what he wants, never quite, he can never quite brush it with his fingertips. And that's, you know, essentially what the whole thing is about, which is we can't, the wanting isn't, it may be satisfied to some degree but never entirely i would love this is this is a great segue because i would love to ask you about the scene uh on top of the crave mm-hmm. um and letting it play for long enough that i think we feel all of those things that seems like it would have just been a beast to work out the timing and in the edit and and to sort of keep sort of that fresh perspective as you go through it again and again and again I would just love to hear about the process of that well I think that you know the moment I saw it and that's the only you know that's the only take and it was always going to be one shot um so it was always there was never a complication about kind of which coverage to choose or whatever it was always that so it was always it was always going to be really a question of cutting you know of 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 when we choose to cut out and and I think that again as with everything in this film and in everything in this genre it's about restraint it's about subtext it's about what you don't show i suppose i'm interested in in what does happen next and and the the feeling that I want people to have is I, I I want I actively want people to sit in the discomfort. I don't I'm not interested in cutting away and letting the audience fill in the it's not interesting to me. It's actually kind of in a weird way more puerile to kind of wink and leave. It's actually, you know, the the nudity in this film and, and this and obviously this like prolonged moment 
is only ever, it's never about sex. And in this scene to me is, has always been about grief yeah. and the kind of futility of loving something that's never gonna love you and, and a kind of desperate attempt to connect in a moment of just complete mad madness and despair and grief. And, and so it, you have to kind of sit in it. You have to sit through the horror and the amusement and then the kind of sadness and the discomfort. And obviously there are a lot of, a lot of people who, you know, understandably wanted it to be cut. But the weird thing was is that when you cut it anywhere but where we did, it just, it actually feels worse somehow. Because at the end of it, he's really sobbing and you see that it's it's not gone anywhere. You see that he realizes himself that this is pathetic and devastating and horrific and not possible. You know, and that unless if you miss that, you miss what it is. And so I always said to all of the producers and, and, and anyone who was concerned about it, it's not the scene, it's me. I need to work harder leading up to this scene then to make sure the audience understands why it's there. Because it's because the scene itself is always and will always be the first thing I saw on that on that day, mm. which was the best the best bit of acting and the best description of like depiction of like kind of grief that I've ever seen. For a character who is, as you said, playing the court, who's always looking, who is always moving people around that moment is so isolating. Well, in all of Oliver's moments of intimacy are solitary. He can't ever really get to anything, you know? He's just sucking up, he's just, he's absorbing what he can, the kind of dregs of what he can, and, and even at the end, in this sort of like totally triumphant, joyful, desecrating kind of dance, it ends with him with his little rocks alone you know it's no and it is like a mirror of the shot of Felix so he can't yeah. he can't get away from it no anyway I was I was so struck by how on on sort of Felix's tour the camera is really focused on him and you can't quite take in the house and then when Oliver dances through the empty house you can't appreciate the house anymore you're just looking at him yeah yeah absolutely well I mean I think that so much of the way that this is you know because it can't escape the films that all the books that come before it and it doesn't so it has to actually kind of rub up knowingly mm -hmm. against them in kind of a f sort of exciting way and you know it's the same thing with the um, you know the way we reveal the house we don't do the kind of classic drone sweeping shot of the house looming from the hills yeah. we just see Oliver's face as in, from the like minicab as he's like oh fuck and then we just reveal the house kind of front on in all of its kind of mad obscene glory and then have him with his little you know wheelie bag yeah. kind of wheeling towards it kind of tragically and and it was always the same with the house it was that everything every kind of it's why Linus and working with Linus is such joy is that every decision that you make you it's an emotional one and the thing is is that the house is so beautiful but the tour isn't about the house. The tour is about Felix. And so the house, it, the idea was always that you never even really saw the house because it didn't matter. And there was also something kind of delicious about finding this house that nobody had ever seen that was the most beautiful house in England and not giving people the money shot. You know, the things that they end up seeing, the shots that are the most over the top, that are the most beautiful, that are the most staged. And, you know, we always cut away a few frames earlier than you'd expect. Mm. So you never quite, you know, get the you never quite get the like, mm, yes, <laughs> yummy it's Pemberley. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't, it's just there. 
it's there. Yeah. Yes, it's here. And it's and that's kind of part of the fun of it. No, absolutely. Like I love that you know when we see sort of uh, Felix walking up, there's there there is sort of this great frontage of the house, but there's nothing more tragic than like a wheelie bag going over gravel, and oh, that's man. what you're paying attention to. I know, and it's just, but also that's the feeling, right? Emotionally, it's like, what do you want to say? Like, what do you want to, you know, what is the what do you want people to feel? And if you see, if you show a house like that in all of its kind of triumph in that way that they're always shown. We're asking people to be impressed. I want people to feel intimidated and like Oliver and also sort of slightly pitying him too because that's an important part of you know, yeah. the structure of this film. Absolutely. I'm curious if there were any, I, I want to phrase it as like, Give a mouse a cookie moment where when you when you when you finally had the space and were sort of coming to grips with this beautiful home that you were shooting in, sort of anything that shifted or changed uh, about the production. When you give the mouse a cookie is such a good way of thinking of it. And if you give him a cookie, he's gonna wanna. Also, I think I think I might be the only English person who knows about that book because I was given it by an American friend. Oh, amazing! So I'm so glad I got the reference. <laughs> I'm glad you did too. Um, uh, to, to read to my children, obviously not to. I, <laughs> I'm reading at a, at a slightly higher level these days, not not quite. But um, absolutely, I try to be quite strict in that regard. I try to be faithful to the script as much as I can. Having said that, when you have the cast and you first start to rehearse them, and when I rehearse, when we all rehearse together, it's quite. Um, it's more loose. It's more kind of we'll read a bit and we'll have conversations, and it's more like a kind of little sort of therapy session. Really, I'm more interested in how people interact and what the chemistry is like between them, and I don't want things to get too sort of sort of fixed. It yeah. feels a bit kind of then. It, then you start to lose interest, and it loses some of the element of surprise that's so important between the actors as well. I think for me, you ha get those actors, and then you see that house, and inevitably there are going to be things that you want to add in. You know, relationships that you want to turn the thumbscrews on just a little bit more, a little bit more detail from this person. You know, actors will say, you know. Rosmond will have come up with the like, most brilliant backstory for Elspeth in the world, so you'll want to get some of that in. Um, and and so, so you will always have, you will always find those things. But, but I think the thing is, is if you've spoken, if you're really close with all of your HODs and your cast, what you find is a weird, it's like a weird circle. Mm. It's like the things the house is right because of the thing and then it becomes it's like the the aspect ratio we did one three three at the beginning we you know we were going we were going back and forth and we were trying things but we kept going back to one three three kept thinking this is going to be this is right and it's much better way to shoot the house the formal framing makes it easier it's much better for those close-up shots but honestly every day once we made that decision it was like the film only only could have been in one three three it only could have ever existed like that and it's the same with and so you it is giving the mouse a cookie but it's also the cookies eating the mouse i guess mm. it's such a yeah no it's 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 a demonic cookie i love that mm -hmm. um exactly yeah it it feels like one three three is the natural because of all of the like it and and then and the incredible texture of the close-ups too. That oh, like, yeah. I, I'm sure it was important to you as as globally and and also sort of in the coverage of the characters to sort of get them sweaty, like disturbed, off balance, all of that. Um, 
Was there was there ever a moment where it wasn't going to be shot on 35 or was that? No. Well, and also the wonderful thing about Linus, um, I mean, one of many, many, many wonderful things because he's just the best, is that he only shoots things on film. Unless, you know, unless you're making something that he'd be like, oh, okay, it might be very interesting to shoot this on digital, mm-hmm. um, you know, for some kind of like, you know, for, for an emotional or like sty- stylistic reason. But in general, he only shoots on film. And so he comes with that. And that's what's wonderful, because, of course, there are always cast-cutting conversations. And it's one of those, I think, film is so often the thing that a lot of directors want but find goes in those yeah. early negotiations. But with Linus you know, it comes as a sort of prerequisite. And and it's honestly, also all of the films that we're looking at, every film we reference in this film, every film that exists in this genre, really from like Peter Greenway to The Servant to, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the most recent one, Atonement, these are all shot on film. Mm. And the texture of film, it's also important to both me and Linus that things are done in camera as much as possible. So there's very little in the grade. You know, we, we obviously there are certain things you, you have to do a little bit in the grade, but sure. we kept as much of the sparkle and the dust in, in there because, you know, we are making a film. And, it, and so the thing is, is that if you are a little bit more expressive, if you do make mise-en-scene, which are kind of, you know, more metaphorical, you also have to kind of let people know that this is still a real world. Yeah. That this is still a physical reality, that these people are still here. And it's why going that close is so important because you see pores and taste buds and stubble rash and sweat. And, you know, I was always kind of like getting, wanting to sort of sweaty armpits and belly buttons full of sweat. And the, and, and, but the mixture of sweat and sun cream, you know, the thing yeah. of the like that stuff makes something human. And the problem, I think, with digital, one of them is, is it's seeing more than the human eye sees. And so you always get this slightly uncanny feeling of, like, I wouldn't see a person like that. You know, you're, I'm actually seeing them in a kind of hyper, hyper real. And what film does that's so beautiful is it, it means you can layer and you can, you know, you can create these, you can create these beautiful, I don't know, you can, you can, yeah, you can just be a little bit more of a fairy tale because everyone is is accepting that this is a this is an artistic endeavor and not an attempt to like slavishly recreate real life. The artifice is part of the the beauty of the storytelling. Yeah, the, um, the artifice yeah. and and the, and actually that it in some ways is more artificial to to sort of pretend that you're not making a film. Mm-hmm. Some might say. I mean, you know, I personally think that you know the the books that I love the most of of a kind of unusual storytelling method that that requires you to sort of get on its wavelength and I think um you know I think of like Angela Carter for example someone like that you know Hilary Mantel that yeah. they're not none of these people are making things that are pretending to be real I suppose but but they are truthful they are honest and they're insightful in a in a different way and that's kind of what I hope for anything that I make and, and that's how everyone else I work with feels too it's like in order to sort of get in order to really stick your fingers in deep, yeah, you have to create the framework that's going to make people be open to. You know, you have to present things with a certain amount of distance so that it's possible. I, I think about it as kind of like teaching you the kind of ride that you're on, so that you can then 
Yeah, relax. Enjoy, yeah, relax and enjoy yeah. it. And yeah. then by the time you're relaxed, it's too fucking late. That's and the, right. And, the, you know, <laughs> the safety bar's down and you can't get off. Mm-hmm. And you're about to go upside down. And You're that's, about to go upside down. Yeah. And sorry, but you knew what you were in for. I mean, yeah, even if you didn't want to see it, you were in for it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I would love to, to kind of ask you about the sort of final reversal that, that Oliver has been planning this from, from Oxford. Um, and I'm curious how you sort of uh, approach either repurposing footage to sort of be that kind of like heist montage or think about sort of sh- shooting the party different ways that yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. It made sense. No, well, it was all in the script. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, is that we had to shoot almost every scene twice, you know, one with good Oliver, one with bad Oliver. Um, sometimes it, it didn't really make it into the film, but sometimes we shot Oliver as Felix and Felix as Oliver. You know, it's absolutely, it's a, it's a, it's a intrinsic part of the whole structure. I think, I think the thing that's interesting though is the kind of motive. I think people felt like, I think I think there there are some people who sort of feel that Oliver's intentions were always the same from the beginning. Hmm. Whereas for me, and you know, again, it's you know, this is this is why one makes things. People can read into them whatever they feel. But certainly for me, it was always that, like all great liars, you're living in the moment, mm-hmm. and every step is simply how do I get to the next step? How do I, if I'm the outsider here? How do I get in? That person who I've been watching for a while seems to have a savior complex. He seems to like heroes. He seems to be quite boyish and old fashioned in his ideas of how things work. Maybe if I come and help him in, a, in an act of very, of, of sort of selfless heroism, you know, and then I give him the sob story that he wants, maybe we'll be friends. And then, oh, he's starting to withdraw that friendship maybe I need to intensify the sadness of the story and you know and it's a step-by-step thing like all of us you know like all of us when we're seducing someone or we're trying to get a job or we're trying to sell a movie whatever we're doing we're all just sort of giving you know giving people what they want the thing for Oliver for me was always you know he says to Felix I just gave you what you wanted and everyone else does and that's the thing about these people is the problem is the more you give them what they want the more they loathe you the more bored they get and so what Oliver perhaps didn't know in the beginning but certainly knows in the end is that there is no pleasing there is no way of staying in there is no way except for really essentially violence there is no and so that it becomes a kind of a series of escalations and you know and I think that there are moments in the film and you you see every moment where he decides oh no oh no, now your luck's run out, you know? Mm-hmm. You see it with Felix and you see it with Venetia. Again, I think it's it's smart that the, the film starts with him with the question of, you know, did, did I love Felix? It's, it's just like this is something that he's getting into mm. um, and doesn't even himself know. You're fine. No, I mean, well, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I can just finish that, yeah, that thought. Um, absolutely, but the thing is, is that he's, you know, what is so wonderful about, the opening and the opening of all of these books and films and you know is that the narrator is always is always unreliable that's why they're there and the more that they pretend that they're just an innocent bystander you know whether it's like you know the good soldier or the great Gatsby these are all men pretending that they had no 
impact on the tragedy that's about to unfold, you know, and and what's so fun about what's so fun about the structure of a, of a film like this or this genre is that Oliver tells us from the very beginning that he's a liar. His first lines are, I wasn't in love with him. And then we're shown pictures of the most beautiful man in the most intimate way. And we know that he's a liar. And we see him lick the bottom of the bathtub. And we see him outside of Felix's window, smoking, watching him. We see him all the time. And we just forget because we want to see the things we want to see. And that's why filmmaking is so fun because, yeah, you're giving people what they want. But you're also giving them something different. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I think that's a great place to end. (laughs) 